Today's podcast is brought to you by the engagedinvestor.ca, helping you find and present to joint venture partners. Get your free video training right now at engagedinvestor.ca forward slash breakthrough. Hi, this is Dion Beg from Butler Mortgage. We're currently ranked the number one mortgage brokerage in Ontario and number two in Canada. And much of our success is due to the fact that we help clients acquire multiple investment properties. If you'd like to talk with a mortgage advisor who specializes in investment property, you can reach me at 888-684-8326. To learn more about what's going on in the world of investment property financing, check out episode 23 of the Breakthrough Podcast, where I discuss the topic with Robin Sandy. For Experts Corner today, we have Jillian Irving from investinstudentrentals.com. Hello, Jillian. Hey, Rob. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Excellent, thank you. Well, thank you for being our expert today. It's my pleasure. Okay, we, our question today is from Tyler, and he asks, what is the difference between typical investment property financing and financing for student rentals? Oh, what a great question, because there is a, quite a big difference, or there can be anyway. Student rental financing can be a tricky business, actually. First of all, not all lenders will even consider student rentals. So of all the big five banks, for example, RBC and CIBC do have student rental programs, but the other ones do not. So you have to dig around and find the right lender. So there are also some Schedule B lenders that will consider student rentals, but of course you'll have a higher interest rate if you go with a Schedule B lender. Another big difference is that the down payment that you are required to put up front can be actually quite a bit higher with student rentals. So in a typical rental property scenario, you are required to put down 20%, right? Mm -hmm. But in a student rental, if for example, you're buying a pre-existing student rental and are actually students living in there, you might have to put as much as 30% down. It's a funny thing because it's not always 30% down, it can be as high as 30% down, but it kind of depends on who your appraiser is, what his mood is that day, what they're doing at the bank, because sometimes, you know, if the students aren't living there, you can put 25% down, or sometimes they say, oh, this isn't a student rental, I don't mention it on the application, in which case you can put 20% down. So you kind of don't know what your down payment is going to be with a student rental. So I always, as a conservative investor, always, always plan to put 30% into the deal because it can happen and it does happen and it just depends kind of on which way the wind is blowing with the lenders and it also depends on your credit file, of course. The more solid you are um, and the more solid your file is, the more likely it is that you can put less down. But, you know, these things are all tricky to predict. So be prepared to put away or put as much as 30% down on the student rental. And that's the biggest difference, I would say, as well. Okay. Well, thank you, Jillian. So we learned that you go to the right bank and you're going to be paying probably a higher down payment for a student rental. But in return, the cash flow is much higher than a regular rental. So Thank you again, Jillian. If you would like to reach out to Jillian and get in touch with her, you can go to investinstudentrentals.com. And anything else, Jillian? So me, me, Monica Jasek, Rachel Oliver, the three of us together have um, sort of formed a group that we've called MORE, which stands for the Mothers of Real Estate. But really, it's about us three women covering, you know, just sort of a wide spectrum of, of real estate strategies. And so, you know, we're a group of women who teach mothers and others. Like, really, it's for 
everyone, but it's, and we're offering an online course. So we're going to be launching that in January and we're going to be taking people through like a seven week online course. And basically it's from a rookie to rock solid investor is what it's called. Okay. Is there a website for it? Mothersofrealestate.com. Or sure, you could always send me an email as well. I'm happy to answer any questions that people have. It's uh, Jillian at JillianIrving.com. Great. Thank you. Thank you for being our guest today on Experts Corner. My pleasure. Have a great night. Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast, Episode 33. Hello and welcome to the Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast. We put this show together to inspire you and help you break through to the life that you want to live through the power of real estate investing. My name is Rob Brake and here with me again, as usual, for your listening pleasure, Sandy McKay. <laughs> hey Rob, uh, I'm excited to go. You always laugh at that intro. I know, he's always... Uh, the dramatic always, pause. Yeah. That's what it is? I guess so, something like that. And, of course, we have our guest on the line with us already, Harry Stinson, who is a well-known real estate developer in the greater Toronto area and everywhere. Very interesting guy. I'm sure that uh, you'll have a lot to share tonight, Harry. Welcome to the show and thank you. Thank you for having me on. How are you? Oh, it's been a reasonably good day today. <laughs> Life of a developer is a yo-yo. <laughs> That's all we can ask for. So just a couple of uh, things we're going to talk about before we get to the interview. And everyone can still get our free gift, the seven freedom activators that you can trigger in your property starting right now. It's a free report to help you make the most out of your rental properties, help you get the best out of your landlording experiences and take some of the stress away from those kind of issues that pop up when you're trying to deal with tenants and toilets and all that kind of stuff. Right, Sandy? Oh, yeah, all that fun stuff. And I, you can get that, of course, over at BreakthroughAreaPodcast.ca. Always appreciate the comments and reviews on iTunes. You can go there and uh, leave us a great review, five stars, if you like the show. If not, uh, you know, maybe just keep it to yourself. Everyone's going to be giving us five-star reviews after tonight's episode, I'm sure. So, yeah, we encourage you to go over there and leave a comment. We haven't gotten too many comments over there, but we are getting up there in the downloads and everyone seems to be enjoying the show. So if you do like it, please go over and leave a comment. We would really appreciate it. And I know Sandy and I usually talk about some things that we're doing, but uh, we're going to kind of skip all that stuff tonight and get right into this interview. How's that sound? I think it's worthwhile. Yeah. Harry sounds ready to go. So let's do it. Okay. So, like I said just a minute ago, we have Harry Stinson on the show. I'm very happy to have him on. He is a real estate developer based out of Hamilton and the president of Stinson Properties. He is a frequent headline speaker at business conferences and real estate functions. He is one of the first Toronto developers to recognize the potential to convert old offices and warehouse buildings into urban condominiums. So, thank you again for being here with us. Well, let's get into this now. <laughs> Uh, okay, so do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got started in real estate investing and why you chose real estate investing as a uh, as a, as an option for you? 
Well, I'm not so much an investor. I'm, I'm a developer uh, who um, takes on the uh, the unusual ones. I got into real estate, uh, actually, I got diverted out of real estate. When I was in school originally, my objective was to go into architecture. And the guidance counselor at our school dissuaded me from that because architects apparently were not as well paid as doctors and lawyers. And he had two pamphlets. One was for law and one was for medicine. And I wanted to be an architect. So all he could tell me was why I shouldn't be that. So I, I decided I'd just... I'd, uh, I'd go into the restaurant business, which is my second interest, which is uh, hospitality and entertainment, which is my family background, the film industry, and I've been in the restaurant and industry sort of on the side. So I opened a restaurant in 1970, and, and I have been sort of on and off in the food business throughout my whole life, but after several years of that, I realized that the, you know I was paying out a lot in real estate, and I still had my love of property, so I became a... I got my license as a real estate agent and then progressed to being a real estate broker. And um, as and I, and I did that because, again, of my interest in, in just the, the actual product itself, the real estate. I've always been obsessed by buildings and, and their potential. And I found that when I was showing properties to people, uh, I, I was more interested in what could be done with the property and how it could be improved. And... Of course, this sometimes undermined the sale, and I'd, I'd start making comments about how this could be better and that could be better, and the client would sort of look at you with this strange look like, but I thought you were trying to sell me this property. And and I just, you know, I found myself noticing, uh, and this was in Toronto in the, in the early 80s and mid-80s, that, that there was actually quite a, quite a demand and an interest for properties that had some style and personality, and, and that wasn't the case in the development industry at the time, so... I resolved that I would uh, exercise my entrepreneurial skills or lack of sin, uh, and I would be a developer and create these interesting properties. So the first project I did that was a, uh, and it was, this was it's completely against the advice I'm going to give later in this discussion. So I, I jumped in with all feet and, and uh, took on a project called the Candy Factory Lofts, and it was the first major loft condominium in Toronto. It was an entire city block size. It's a huge project. Uh, you know, starting from nothing, it was it just made no sense. But um, I, you know, I had this gut instinct from listening to my customers that there was a, an opportunity for interesting properties downtown for something that had that that urban vibe, the New York loft feel, uh, which was you know, at that time very visible in movies like Flashdance and Ghosts and other films where the you know the main personality would be in these very sexy New York lofts. And there was nothing like that in Toronto. People were asking me, well, you, can you find it? You know, you're this condo expert who specializes in them. You must know where they are. And, and what I did know is they didn't exist. And, you know, when you have clients, they're, you're driving them around and, and they're prepared to spend three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000. Again, this was, this was 30 years ago. Uh, and, and you couldn't find anything for them to spend that money on. Well, that's pretty frustrating. So that was sort of my motive as well as creating product to sell. And the candy factory was, uh, it, it was a gamble. And uh, some people would say it was risky and it didn't make any sense because there was no precedent or proof. But it turned out to be uh, very popular amongst the customers. So we did sell the loss there. And this was, um, you know, in that, in that time frame, which was, it was early 90s by the time I got rolling, you know, the actual development site. Queen Street West in Toronto was a wasteland. And, you know, the stores were beaten up and most of them were empty and the, sh the shops were decrepit and the 
the upper levels of the of all these retail things were often empty completely. Apartments weren't leased. The houses were looking a little beaten. Trinity Bellwood Park was a, a drug haven and full of needles. And the candy factory itself was a, a, an empty warehouse, had been empty for 20 years. It was full of pigeon poop. The, near, the warehouse beside it was empty. The warehouse across the street was empty. We had uh, the Ontario Mental Hospital to the west of us, so that wasn't exactly an improvement on the empty warehouses. It was practically a Saturday Night Live epitome of where you should not put a luxury condo. But it sold. Because people like this edgy environment and they love the bones of the building. And when that happened and the project actually moved ahead and construction began, there was a, just an avalanche of activity on Queen Street West. And this was such a major construction job that people figured, wow, I guess they must know something. I better get in on this. And development along Queen Street West exploded, along King and Queen West. And that whole downtown area boomed and it was it was quite thrilling uh many years later, two thousand and six to be exact, uh to pick up a copy of Toronto Life on the their cover issue was fortieth anniversary of Toronto Life and they they had a story on the ten most important events in Toronto's history. And the candy factory was listed amongst the ten most important events, which was Oh wow, that's that cool. was pretty cool and certainly not something you'd see now. I mean now you see the you know, Another condo is said with this sort of disgust kind of well, off, off, and we need another <laughs> condo. You know? and, and yet it was seen as in the story they basically said this was the was the beginning of the new urban lifestyle downtown, and people all piled on. Or no, people developers all started to copy it, and uh, so that was the first major one. And then uh, over the years, I've got involved in similar projects, but they've all had this same pattern, which was to, to sort of uh, sense a niche, an unsatisfied niche, and sense a property that had real standout potential. I mean, I, I'm known pretty well, for better or worse, but I'm not a big developer. I mean, I, I'm I'm just a little boutique developer who does a number of extremely interesting buildings, whereas, a, a, say, a Madame Homes or a Tridel, I mean, you're, they're well-known in the industry, and they're well-known if you happen to be looking for a condo or a house, but, you know, if you're just to ask the average person on the street, you know, to name the developer, well, it'll, my name will probably come up, although I, I've only done like a fraction of the type of business that they do. Uh, but what I, the way I see it is that these are iconic buildings that that will, you know, have a permanence and a presence and have made a difference in the community. You know, I, I gave a speech a few years ago at the uh, Idea City that Moses Neimer does every year on on buildings and. and and the theme of it was that buildings uh, are, in fact, um, historic, international, timeless, cross-culture icons. When you think of, you see a picture of the Eiffel Tower, and you know where it is. You know, it's Paris. You see a picture of, you know, of the Plaza Hotel, and it's the Grand Hotel in New York. You see a picture of Buckingham Palace. You see the... You see a picture of the Disney Castle. You see a picture of the Taj Mahal. You see a picture of the pyramids. And each one instantly sends a message of where it is and what it represents. And it was the, the, the opening to that little address was, I, you know, I run through this long list of, of iconic buildings and, and, and images from around the world. And I said, you know, but today in the newspaper, and this was at the time of the story, newspaper announcing the live aid concerts around the world. And each one of these concerts was done in front of an iconic building structure. So they only had the Brandenburg Gates and again the Eiffel Tower, blah, blah, blah. And then it came to the Canadian location. And the Canadian location 
because they could not find an iconic Canadian building, was going to be in Molson Park. I mean, what a statement on the Canadian architecture. <laughs> the best we could find is yeah. a beer park, you know. <laughs> no significance whatsoever. It could be in Canada. It could be in Wisconsin. It, you know, it could be outside of Moscow. There was absolutely nothing that people would say, well, that's Canada. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Absolutely. I mean, even something, a picture of the Chateau Frontenac. Most people would say, well, I don't know. That's, um, gee, that must be in Germany. I think I've seen a castle like that. That's right. We've done a terrible job promoting our iconic buildings, and yet Canadian architects are amongst the best in the world, and they do some spectacular buildings, generally in the Far East. Well, you know, we've got the CN Tower, but it's kind of hard to do a shot of a, of a Live Aid concert in front of the CN Tower without pan, without well, uh, without doing it from really far yeah, back. Indeed, the, the stage would be pretty small, and that wouldn't yeah. quite work. And yeah. the CN Tower, it's big and tall, but... You know, there's identical towers in Moscow, in, in Beijing, you know, in, in various cities in the States that are basically of pretty much the same shape. There's nothing iconic about it at all except it's really tall, and that doesn't say enough mm -hmm. in the sense that, say, the Eiffel Tower does, which just has this sort of romantic, you know, image with it. So I, I'm obsessed with the buildings, and, and, and it really is, if, if there's any sort of justification in the end. It's the fact that you've, you've created something that is lasting and actually means something to people in general. So my, my, my start was seeing a need and sensing an opportunity in the marketplace you know, to, to take this fascination with buildings and make it into an actual business. And of course, real estate is also potentially quite lucrative if and when you actually get on a roll. Of mm -hmm. course, it also is devastating if you fall off that roll, but you know, the motivation is the obsession with uh, with buildings. So now, if we're going to, can we talk about the candy factory a little bit more? And I just wanted to talk about, for developers, some of the challenges in the project itself that you faced and how you overcame them. Well, I've got to tell you the biggest single challenge is financing. And it remains the a challenge uh, to developers at all levels. Even to this day, I mean, there are some developers who have eclipsed that level, say Mattamy, which becomes self-financed, and and some of the developers in Toronto, which who are essentially, um, and to be blunt, laundering money from out of the country that they're taking out of political environments that uh, that are unstable, and you know, to take a few hundred million bucks out of Russia or the Middle East or or China. You know, they're not taking it out because they think Toronto is a better place to get higher returns. In fact, the returns in Canada on real estate compared to international are not that good. But it's pretty safe. Whereas if you know, if you have that lump of money sitting in in those environments, it could disappear tomorrow morning because Vladimir Putin doesn't like you anymore, or the Chinese government changes the law, or the dictator gets overthrown, or you know, there's all kinds of things that can happen. We're in a very lucky part of the world, and that's caused our market to be a little bit odd. But financing for the average developer remains an enormous challenge because the real estate financing industry is incredibly conservative uh, and is very much an insular little club. You know, whether you're the you know your first time little project or putting together a little group of people or something, or trying to finance a duplex or a rental property or an income property, you know, it, it's it's just like it puts you through the ringer. And, and yet the same finance industry will will throw billions of dollars at these absurd 
dot-com companies that to this day can't explain how they're ever going to make a profit. Yeah. You know, it's very frustrating to us dinosaurs just trying to build a house. But financing is is one of the single greatest challenges. And, and the financing derives the bus. And the financing forces people to do things that they shouldn't do in development, such as pre-selling. I mean, what other industry is there where you have to lock in your revenues years in advance? And then your costs, uh, whatever, they'll just continue to grow as, as time passes. But your revenues are, are locked. That's completely counterproductive to the business model. And you should be have some costs, and hopefully your business grows. And you know, But we're, we're doing this upside down. It protects the banks, but it's not in the interest of the borrower. Hmm. Anyways, I, financing remains an enormous challenge. The way I have ended up dealing with it is by setting up my own financing, setting up my own fund and creating my own financing mechanism and building my own network of investors you know, who will believe in the concepts. And in my case, it's a little different, because I, I tend to do you know, off-the-wall projects, and I'm sure you'll get to that part in a bit here. Um, yeah. So mine are not are not normal. If there's any advice there to people, it's, well, stick with normal. <laughs> it's a hell of a lot easier to finance. I was going to say, that must make it a little <laughs> even more challenging. Oh, yeah. It, it, it just multiplies. Because the, the difficulty is that the financing industry, um, real estate financing industry, loves uh, uh, precedent. They like to copy. They don't like anything that's unusual or new. Mm-hmm. But if you were to go into Silicon Valley and walk into some venture capitalist and say, you know, I've got this concept that is completely boring, and it's been done hundreds of times before, and there's, no, there's nothing novel or unique about it whatsoever, would you like to invest in it? And they would say, what are you, nuts? Why would we invest in something that has nothing unique about it at all? We're looking for something different, something that will, you know, be a home run. But if you go into the real estate financing people and say, you know, I've got something unique, they would say, stop right there. Where you go? Yeah. Thank you. You know. Yeah. We don't Maybe do try unique. Next door. You know. Yeah. yeah. Right. We do repetitive. I mean, when you think about it, one of the questions that, that, that you know I, I think we've talked about before here is, is why do I do the risky things? What? What's? I don't see what I do is risky. What I think is risky is somebody buying a piece of land in, say, Toronto downtown. It's a parking lot that would fit a few cars, a dozen cars on it, maybe, and paying 30, 40, 50, 60, 140 million dollars for the corner of Bloor and Young Frank Stallery store. That's absurd. So now, how did you overcome that then? Okay, well, how, how I addressed financing is to rely on private lending. And yes, it's expensive, but uh, if you need to pay a higher amount to buy a property that has enormous upside, then it's a fair trade-off. Mm-hmm. Of course, my objective is to be clear of having to borrow it and be able to use my own working capital at some point. And you know, I have been at that level. I mean, at, at some times in my career where I did have the the money freely available, um, and. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's something I started <laughs> to doing again, but certainly having discretionary capital available to acquire property is enormously valuable, whether it's unusual property or normal property. That's the people who are making the big money in real estate right now is the lenders. Exactly. Yeah, I hope to be one of those one day. Well, there's even a loan-to-own 
uh, element of the finance industry. And this is something that people have to be very concerned about, careful about rather, is that there are lenders out there who can see you coming and who are delighted to uh, help some uh, <laughs> somebody who is who is desperately trying to raise money and clearly is having trouble doing it. And they, you know, they welcome you into their clutches and uh, say, you know, we uh, we're we're different. We're here to help you, you know. And yeah, it costs a little bit more, but you know, we believe we're prepared to look think outside the box. And what they really mean is, we see somebody here who doesn't really have a lot of experience and doesn't have a lot of equity in it and is struggling to put together this deal. And there's a fair likelihood they're going to fall flat in their face. And we can just repossess the property, mm-hmm. pick up their equity, and walk ahead. Because we're in the real estate business anyways. We know what to do with this thing if we have to repossess it. They mm-hmm. actually hope that you repossess it. And I have gone through my share of experiences with these loan-to-own sharks. They're basically, they're, they're just waiting for you to fall on your face. You know, it, 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 they will lend you just enough to hang yourself. Interesting. And as soon right. as you have a cash call, as soon as you run into a surprise, as soon as you actually need a little bit more money, they're going to be the ones who say, and they'll say, "Oh gosh, we're, oh we're just, we're shocked, we're we're, we're so disappointed, we're you know, it, it's it's just too bad that this has happened." But you know, and they always allude to the partner in the back room or the lending committee or some other mythical group that they have to go and talk to, and, and then they really they're really sorry, but they they just can't 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 help you. But but just maybe they might be able to, and they'll come up with some other variation on the loan. So gradually you find that you have been talked out of the property. Your equity has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk till you don't have any anymore. Hmm. And they're delighted to just repossess it from you. Oh sure, and this like everyone, everyone that lends you money, I'm sure, would be delighted to repossess the property. You no, know, the banks generally don't want any hassles. They just want to get a regular check, and they don't want any surprises. So, so that's why they're very, very cautious. If they really don't want any hiccups, the lend the guy at the bank, the guy in the normal lending institution, his main concern is not repossessing. His main concern is having this file go sideways. So then he has to explain to his boss why he made this loan because they just want stable they don't make a lot of money on they just want stable cash flow mm-hmm. high volume so something that goes sideways is problematic for them uh, so the lender is more interested in no no problems um, and they charge less but they're they're generally not interested in financing something um, that is anything but a single family owner occupied house <laughs> So, but I mean, you're not opposed to those kind of lenders either, right? Like, am I right? You just want to, you're stating to be cautious and make sure you know what you're doing before you go to somebody like that because they're, they're you know, the last resort if the bank has passed you by, right? Well, they're a last resort, and it's just it's a fine line between taking the funds to be able to get that property and not, you know, boxing or painting yourself into a corner. Um but I, I do believe that there is as much or more opportunity in properties that, that may be harder to finance. I mean, I, I, that's what I, I look for. I look for properties that are uh, orphans, you know, that, that, that people don't necessarily, uh, you know, the, the average buyer, the average purchaser, the average developer is not is not going to jump at. It. And when the vendor 
doesn't have lineups of people, you know, wanting it, uh, that's when they're more grateful. That's when they'll cut a deal with you. That's what, so I look for properties that are unique and don't have a long lineup of potential, potential buyers. And that's when I can strike a good deal. But I'll tell you, I do not do this. And this is where the, the difference on risk comes in. I look at every day something else, sometimes two or three people you know, email me, call me, I see it in a magazine, I see it in the newspaper. I see unusual properties constantly, maybe once a year. I'll say, yeah, that, that, that'll work. So it's not a question of just going at the oddball ones and the low-hanging, low you know. You have to actually have a reason for buying it, not just because it appears to be an orphan. It sounds great to sort of be in your position as well because, I mean, those people know what you do and they're sending you all of these interesting things of which I'm sure you get the same one a hundred times over before you get a new one. But uh, that must be a pretty cool position to be in. Just They probably flow into you pretty often, don't they? Um, they do. And, and, you know, on the other hand, you, you, you sort of walk, uh, you sort of look at them and, and get tired of it after a while because people will call you at this complete you know, lost cause properties, and oh wow, this is amazing! You know, this is just down your alley. You think, well, I'm really not actually that thrilled that you think that I'm that stupid, you know? yeah. because a lot <laughs> of them really are losers, <laughs> and there's a reason why they're sitting. I won't do. I have to see a property. I have to see what to do with that property. How can I make that into a viable uh, piece of real estate? What can I do with it? I mean, are these people's expectations? Oftentimes, the reason it's sitting is because the vendor is just completely on the wrong planet in terms of its value. They're wanting a ridiculous price, and the reason they've been passed by is because they're greedy. Mm -hmm. Or because there just isn't any market for that product, or the location is just completely isolated. I mean, I don't go after things that that are just just because they're they're available. I have to see a use for that property. You know, maybe after you know decades of doing this, I have a little more sense of what I can do with it. Uh, but, um, you know, they really do have to have some upside. And, and I don't see the value sometimes of a small property. I mean, there's a lot of work involved in doing development. And so realizing I, to do a development when you're doing some cute little property is, is worthless. Mm -hmm. There's got to be a margin in it. So I will go and I'll see something. The first thing I'll do is I'll look at it on Google Earth, of course. Or if I happen to know the area, that's how that's handy. And then if I think there's some potential in it, I will go and look at it, physically look at it. And then if I think it's worthwhile, I will make an appointment to see the property, and I will wander around and and well, it's not terribly original. I walk around and and look disgusted, you know. Point out everything that's wrong with it. Gee, that, 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 <laughs> that crack is there something? Uh, you know, I don't know. That's a little worrisome to me. You know, and you know. Yeah. So, so how are they going to handle parking here? I mean, I'm looking at a property right now that I think is is just is, is got enormous potential, but it doesn't. It has a, a parking issue that that I know how to solve it. But am I going to go and say, ah, "Don't worry about it. I know how to do these things." I'm going to walk in and say, "Well, you know, I'm really concerned about the parking. You know, there doesn't seem to be any parking here." What's the yeah. Well, I want them to say, yeah, well, you know, a lot of people have said that. So, well, yeah, it is a big factor, you know. I've got to say, it's, it's, it's bothering me, you know. <laughs> I, 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 I'm trying to find the make, trying to make this work, but it's a toughie. You know, I'm not going to say, wow, I'm so glad you called me. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I got to look so, at it and be discouraged, and, and and you know, and not call the tie back for a few days. Wait for the agent to call me and say, "Well, so what do you think?" Said, well, I don't know. I don't know. You know? <laughs> tell you what, I'll offer you two dollars. <laughs> Yes, and you have an interesting story about something like that uh, that we're going to get to later, I think. But this next question, I'm sure, is like this is loaded because okay. you've got so many projects. Uh, so I, I think once we ask this, Sandy, you and I can just sit back and relax for oh, quite a while. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Let us um, carry the show. Okay. I'm good. Well, okay. let's you, – you, you talked about the candy factory. Now, like – Tell us about some of the other projects that you've done and, and how you progressed to where you are today. Well, I don't know. I was expecting something a lot scarier than that. And, um, well, it's it's not scary, but it's 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 something uh, – because I've heard you speak before, and I know all of the interesting things that you've done, and, and so now I just get to sit back and relax and listen. Well, okay, the Candy Factory was um, quite an experience, and it did it sort of set up the market. In that sense, the next one that I, I worked on, which was even more outrageous on a major scale, um, was the One King West. Uh, in between, I actually did a small project with Tridel, and the sort of things actually I quite like doing. They they contacted me, and they had an interesting situation uh, at Village by the Grange, which is uh, downtown Toronto, and uh, they'd done a development called Village by the Grange, which was Merb condominiums that uh, basically Queen and um, well, just north of Queens and Queen and Dundas, west of the university. And the low, the main floor of this whole complex was a, was a mall called Village Riley Range. And it had a whole bunch of restaurants and boutiques and everything. And the brothers, uh, Alvio Leo and Angelo Delzato, had built this mall that they, that they had put their heart and soul into. It was quite fascinating. It was like a little village and these little streets wandering around and, and they had steam clocks and fountains and so on. They'd, I think they'd modeled after sort of Vancouver, Gastown, um, and it was interesting, but it was a complete failure as a mall because they weren't in the retail business. And there is a whole science to how you make people go into and buy things in a mall. And they had made this charming, but, but quite incomprehensible. So over the years, all the stores had failed in Village by the Grange. And they ended up owning everything, including Ginsburg and Wong, which was this very neat restaurant in, in the mall itself. So I was contracted to redevelop it as loss. So we took this mall and turned it into 89 lofts. Every single one was totally different within a, a former retail mall. And to this day, if you walk along McCall, you know, you'll see these little sort of townhouses at the base of Village by the Grange, and they're all lofts inside. And we were getting higher prices per square foot there than they were getting down the street at the Icon, which was a conventional project they were building at the same time. We had no security. We had no facilities. We had no parking. It was completely wrong, but it had character. And the design of it was incredibly complicated. It was like a Rubik's Cube. And so I was called in because they knew that their massive machine was not set up to sort of slow down and do this fussy little project. So I was sort of the, the skunk works who was brought in, and it was fun to do. I mean, they were great people to work with. They had the, the manpower and the funding behind it. I could just focus on the development. So that was in their name, but it was a project that quite quite proud of having done. Um, one King West was an unusual one. Um, I had bought a piece of land at Five King West, which was the old Nags Head Tavern. Very narrow, 29 feet wide, 170 feet long. Tiny little building just to the west of the corner of King and Young. And it was for sale for $2.9 million, this, this little building. 
is only four stories, really quite small retail building. And um, but it was wedged in between this bank building at One King and an office building at Seven King, or sorry, at uh, Eleven King Street West, and it was empty. And I had uh, it was such an unlikely site because it was physically, uh, you know, virtually impossible to build on. It was felt uh, of any scale. Um, and it was three million bucks, and it had historic buildings on either side, and so nobody really knew what to do with it. But I figured the corner of King and Young, like that, that's got to be worth something. So I bought it, and I bought it because there was a zoning on it that had been passed years ago that allowed a tower of 36 times coverage to be built on that site. Well, the tower was never built because they could never figure out how to build it. And then the owner had lost it. It went into receivership, and then it was bought by Albert Friedberg, and it came to currency exchange, and it passed through many hands. But this bylaw sat on the books. So I went back to the city and said, well, I see this bylaw on a property, and it doesn't, doesn't seem it seems unusual to me. There's no height limit on this. Am I missing a page or something? And they said, no, no, it's, you know, I think it's valid. We don't understand it either. But, I mean, when you think about it, how the hell are you going to build anything significant there? It's 29 feet wide. You've got a glass historic building on one side and a limestone historic building on the other side. You know, you can't put equipment or material anywhere. It's right at the corner of King Young. It's sitting on top of a subway station. Like, this is absurd. But good luck, kid. Hmm. So I figured out how to design a building that was 51 stories tall and 29 feet wide. And um, that was the tower, which is currently one King West. Because um, I, had a develop, I had an investor partner who came along after I originally started the project, that David Mervish got involved in the project as a small investor, and then he went out and bought One King West, which was a, the bank building at the corner from the TD Bank. Well, it cost him $21 million, which was way over my head, but you no, know, it was, it was uh, you know, at the time, I, I knew his father, Ed Mervish, quite well, and, and David sort of inherited it, and he wanted to get into the development business. I think he really just wanted to get out from under the shadow of his father, who, of course, is still the you know the iconic the Mervish, um, and so he bought one king and proposed that we blend them as a project, and so we did, and uh, one king west um, was from an engineering perspective a first of a kind. It is still the slenderest building in the world by ratio based height, and from a, a precedent of condos in downtown Toronto, again this was 1998-99 when we took it to the market as a condo hotel. It's not that long ago, like 15, 16 years ago. At the time, if you read the media clippings and articles on it, the derision, the criticism, the, the snarky remarks, look at the size of these suites. They're just little condos. Nobody in their right mind would buy this small condo downtown. Like, this was 15 years ago. And it was considered absurd that people would buy a small condo in the center of the city. Mm -hmm. Well, they did. And One King obviously got built. And although it's not regionally recognized and was not really understood in the rather nasty and messy legal battle that eventually happened between myself and, the Mer and the David Mervish, um, the One King West as a hotel, as a condominium hotel, and it is the only truly condominiumized hotel that I know of, where every unit in the building is part of the hotel. One King West is one of the most successful hotels in the city of Toronto. It is consistently run occupants between 80 and 90 percent. We were up to 87 percent within 18 months of opening. Fantastic. And the food and beverage generates more money there 
in the room rentals. It and is a that... phenomenally successful hotel operation. I'm very proud of that. And I ran it and set it up. Yeah, and that I... is... And I've seen some of the uh, slides of that building. And I... is it the bank building that's in front of it where... They had redone some stuff and covered over all of the old original finishes. Was well, that, that, that is so typical. That is so typical in these old buildings. We, we found that at the Graphic Arts Building, too. I think you, you saw that slide where, you know, we pulled up the carpet and we found white marble. And we pulled down the ceilings and we found this elegant coffered ceilings with, you know, we, we cleaned off the railings and we found brass and gold underneath the paint. So they just didn't want it like they turned it into an office building and didn't <laughs> didn't want to stimulate the workers more than they needed oh, to. Is boring. that what it is? You know, but it, yeah. that, I mean, you, you see it even in Hamilton here with the the school board building that we bought at the Gibson School. All the windows were covered in aluminum siding for heat retention. Well, I mean, these wonderful big windows were covered because they had fluorescent lights inside and they didn't want to have to turn the boiler up. You know, it just, just got awful things. And the drop ceilings in Stinson School, when we bought this school, you know, they had 10 foot wide, 10 foot high ceilings, which were nice, but the reality was the ceilings were really 14 feet. So, and, you know, and we just, all we did is take down the T bar ceiling, you know, and, and rip up the carpet from the floor, and you find these wonderful materials. But One King was used as a, by the bank as an office building. So, when you go in now and you see some of the grand rooms and, you know, the polished, the, the gold ceiling and the banking hall and the big chandeliers and the polished limestone floors, that was all covered with carpet. Those chandeliers were from Home Depot. They weren't original. The gold leaf on the ceiling, we painted it on. Like, we created this grandeur. The scale was there originally, but it was lost over time in just sort of, you know, homogenous, you know, improvements in the 60s and 70s so that would be, I did the only time it. that would be really nice if that would happen in my house i want to pull up the floors and see what i got under yeah it doesn't always work that way my friend <laughs> no but one king became an incredibly successful hotel operation and is to this day and then i got the bug for the hotel business at that time i mean i've always you know loved the hospitality industry but hotels are something on a major scale and when, when we designed One King West to operate as a sort of a condo hotel, we thought, well, you know, no problem. They'll just go get an operator, you know, Four Seasons or Delta or somebody will come and operate as a management company. Nobody wanted to do it because the, the, the structure we'd set up, which was a sort of a voluntary pool where all the revenues were split amongst all the owners, including the food and beverage, including the parking, including everything that came in the front door, including the bar revenues, including the food in the banquet rooms. All this was split amongst the owner every month. Well, they looked at it and said, that's not a hotel. This is more like a kibbutz. You know, <laughs> we need control. We need, we'll run a hotel, but who's the owner? The 574 owners? That sounds like a nightmare to us. So I could not find a hotel management company to manage One King West, so I had to go out and set up my own hotel management company. Mm. And so as a result, because we had no rules, we had no head office telling us what to do, we we had to hustle. And then you so now, is that because everyone that was in the project wanted to stay in? Did you try and buy no, them out? No, or? no, it wasn't. It was, in fact, one of the, of the of the complications with One King to this day is the fact that it's a voluntary pool. So in, in the hotel that I'm doing in Niagara Falls now, it is kind of minimized, but it's not a voluntary pool. If you don't want to be in the pool, don't buy it, because that's what it is. It's a hotel. 
we are running this thing 100% for the maximum you know, revenue and profits from the building. One King West is not that way. One King is a voluntary pool. You can be in it or not be in it. And that is problematic. We did, because Initially, we didn't think of that way. We thought of it as, that, well, that would be fair because not everybody wants to be in the hotel pool, which is true. But there was also this middle ground of people who were quite willing to buy into One King West and to piggyback along on our momentum and marketing and services and everything. They didn't want to go in the pool. What that really meant is they didn't want to pay their share of being in the pool. So they will go, and now, you know, it's even worse these days, now they can take their suite and put it on Airbnb, or they can put That's it right. on the Gigi. Okay, so they advertise, my rack rate for the hotel may be 189 for the night. Well, some guy on Kijiji will be there at 139. So Mr. Consumer, Mrs. Consumer out there going online to find, oh, I've heard One King West is a cool place to say, oh my gosh, we found a great deal here. Are they part of the hotel pool? No. When they show up at the front desk and say, hi, you know, we're Mr. and Mrs. Smith, we've come for our room, the girl at the front desk is going to say, I'm sorry, I don't see you in the system. Well, that's not fair. So we're already off to a bad start. If they manage to find the owner who's looking in the corner of the lobby with the keys, they then discover that the room didn't get cleaned because they're not part of the pool, so the housekeeping isn't included. They then discover that instead of getting the, you know, the thread count that we have on our quality sheets, that they got something left over from the owners downstairs, and the furniture is thrown together, and it's IKEA, and you know, and they're not getting the guest experience of the hotel. Then they're angry, and that casts a bad reputation in the hotel. So if you're running corporate accounts, and we had 167 corporate, 167 corporate accounts at the hotel, and you're trying to give a consistent uh, experience to the guests so they can report back mm -hmm. and get reimbursed, and you start to have people accidentally, you know, renting outside of the pool, and then when we go to renew next year and for the Royal Bank or whatever, and they say, well, we have a bit of a problem. We've had a number of complaints. Well, why is that? Well, these people didn't know. Oh, no, they weren't staying in the pool. Well, listen, that's not our problem. <laughs> right, yeah. You know? All we know is that we're sending people to One King West, and some of them aren't having a good time. <laughs> so it undermines the brand. That, that's the purpose of a brand, is consistency and reliability. You know what you're getting in McDonald's, for better or for worse. You know what you're getting at Four Seasons. You're paying, but you know what you're getting, and you're paying for that. I yeah. want to go to Four Seasons and pay a premium because I know that I get a consistently good experience. The actual hotel condo label just actually opens it right up to Airbnb, doesn't it? Well, it does because there is no such thing as a condo hotel that is one definition. There could be many definitions of it. Generally speaking, what it is is that in a building complex, there's a hotel and there's a condo, and they're sort of side by side or above or below or something like that, but they're not the same legal entity and they're not the same operational entity. So you could be staying. Like the Trump Tower has three faces. It has a hotel, it has some corporate suites, and it has condos on the top. Just because you bought a suite at the Trump Tower doesn't mean you're part of the hotel. In fact, you're not at all. Okay. All the hotel suites are owned by Alex Schneider, who's a Russian billionaire. And if you think that you're part of the hotel because you have a condo, Trump Tower, well, that's a surprise you're going to have, and that's why they had a lot of controversy there, is people blindly bought into that building, paying ridiculously high prices, and then after the fact realized, oops, I guess we didn't read our documents. How the hell are we going to cover this thing? Yeah. We're paying the high costs. We're not getting any of the revenues. We got snookered. And they tried to get out of their deal, claiming they were hoodwinked. 
And, of course, the Securities Commission and the courts looked at it and said, well, we don't even feel your pain. You guys blindly bought something that was wildly overpriced, didn't bother reading your documents, and you're coming to us to try and get you out of a deal? Sorry. So now what, I guess not recourse, but what kind of actions can you take now to sort of get this under control? Well, one thing is, is defined. It, it's, you know, I eventually sold my, when we settled everything, which was not widely covered, but someday the story will be told. When I settled and left One King, you know, the management contract that I had set up for running the, the hotel management company, notwithstanding the comments that the nervous made in the newspaper about my being insolvent and the company being a disaster and so on, that management contract was sold back to the condominium owners for $14 million. Just the management contract for $14 million. That was the definition of insolvent. I can take that any day. Yeah. <laughs> now, unfortunately, a huge chunk of that disappeared into the pockets of the lawyers who were involved in the two-year-long fight. Mm -hmm. So it was not a good experience for anybody. But the value of that contract was extraordinary. And that was just the contract. That was with no ownership of the suites, which resided with the unit owners. So that's how valuable a management contract can be. That's why Four Seasons, for example, is a management company. They don't own any hotels. All the hotels are owned by private investors, like largely Bill Gates and Sheik Elwaid. Oh, that's interesting. They're I didn't the, know that. Four Seasons is just a management company. And Bill Gates also owns the majority of the shares in Four Seasons these days. Hmm. So he also owns most of CN Rail. So if you think Mr. Gates is in the computer industry, he's in boilerplate <laughs> industries. Um, but the, the hotel itself, the management of it is enormously profitable. And that's split between the owner and the manager. So and going forward, I you know, I determined that next time around I am not going to get in that situation. I'll control the hotel. If investors want to be part of it and make good money, that's great. But we will make them more money by having it specifically set up to operate as a dedicated hotel, not as a condominium in which you might be able to rent your suite. And so that is what you're working on right now in Niagara Falls, right? That's correct. We have 220-suite hotel right in Niagara Falls, New York, with 20,000 feet of function space and up to 1,000 feet of banquet. And it, it is going to be a dedicated, it is a historic hotel, so we're just restoring it. But it is going to be 100%, you know, you're part of the pool, the suite is 99,000, you pay all cash up front, to be in it because it's not easy to finance something like that. But 99 grand's not the end of the world. You own the suite and you get your equal share of all the revenue coming in the building. You can't live in it. You get five nights a year. You can stay there, but you know five nights in, in Niagara Falls, New York, is, is more than enough time for anybody to stay. And it's it's just a business. And they will yeah. generate a. They will maximize their revenue as a result. <clears throat> So tell us a little bit about the hotel and how you came to manage the project. Well, this is another one of my, my very logical and predictable business plans. I'm sitting on a GO train going <laughs> to Toronto one day, and I pick up the top of the National Post. There's an ad for this historic-looking building, and it says $45,000 in this picture of a neat old building. And I thought, well, that's pretty neat, a condo in this building for forty-five grand. That's probably not a bad investment. I think I'm going to like read this a bit more. And what I found out was it actually was an ad for a foreclosure auction. And the $45,000 was the minimum that you had to bring to the auction to get into the room and bid on the building. So I showed up at the auction with my $45,000 cashier's check, 
and bid on the building and ended up getting this this building for just over two million dollars and when all of this settled on the cost. Um, and that was again for a two hundred and twenty suite hotel with, with huge function space right on the edge of Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm. On the US side. Yeah, I was gonna say US side, yeah. On the US side. And and uh, so it was it was a spontaneous acquisition. I'd never been in Niagara Falls, New York before. <laughs> I had no clue what the real Niagara Falls market was, but I was entranced by the old hotel. So uh, that was four years ago. Uh, it has been a, a learning curve for sure, finding out more about the, the U.S. market and Niagara Falls, USA specifically. And it's had its, its setbacks and challenges, but, you know, it, in fact, I, I feel more strongly about it now than I did at the beginning, although, you know, I had to learn how to, how to finance it properly. You know, the United States or the USA Niagara Falls uh, has a huge disadvantage from the Canadian Niagara Falls, which is that it doesn't have the view. So Niagara Falls, Canada is on the right side of the falls, so you're looking straight at it, magnificent view, and I mean, that's, that's where you want to be if you want to look at the falls, it's the Canadian side. I did not design the border, whoever did, I'm sure, um, you know, got his knuckles wrapped afterwards, but it's too late. <laughs> the U.S. side does not have the view. Now, that was not a factor for the tourist until recently, because the border was reasonably transparent. You could just show up, go across the border, and go to Canada. So tourists would go to Niagara Falls from all over the world, and they would end up at the Canadian side, because the view was better. So then you have 9-11, and the whole security world changed, and the border between Canada and the U.S. changed to something that was very difficult to cross. And now you need a passport to go across. Not just a driver's license, you need a passport. The vast majority of Americans, with 75%, do not have a passport. Because, you know, why do you need a passport when you can go to Disney World and Las Vegas and New Orleans and New York? You know, what do you need a passport for? You can, everything's there in the United States. And most tourists going to the United States from China or South Asia, which is the largest uh, source of tourism now in the world is China and South Asia, they get a visa for the United States. It's America. I mean, to, to them, we all look the same. You know, we're all just all Americans. What's, what's the difference? So they get to the Canadian-U.S. border, and they go, oh, I'm just going to go over to that hotel over there. And the border guard says, passport, please. And they say, passport? I don't know. What do you passport for? Well, to go to Canada. This is Canada. Well, I don't have a passport. Um, you know, I'm just going for the day. It doesn't matter. You have a passport. The other problem is they have to line up now for hours, you know, during the peak tourism season to go across. So all of a sudden, this easy border is no longer easy. And millions and millions of tourists cannot go to the Canadian side. So what used to be an imbalance of the Canadian side hoovering up all the tourists is now starting to right itself, and there's more of an even spread. It's still uneven, but at the moment, it's 8 million captive visitors on the U.S. side. Canadian side has more, but 8 million still a lot of captive visitors in the U.S. side. They can see the falls by going over to Goat Island and going out on the bridge. But that's the only way you can see the falls from the U.S. side. Because of this process over the last many years, the U.S. side never developed much of a hotel industry because the people would just drive through. So the only hotels on the U.S. side, all they could offer as their sort of, you know, their their sales pitch was, hey, we're cheaper. You know, come stay at our motel. Come stay at our, you know, our basic hotel. It's only 99 bucks with a with a water slide in the lobby. It just became cheesy hotels. Right. There was no need for it to be any better. 
And, and that's getting, not bad if you can take a cab back after whatever you're doing, but if they've made it harder, then that's gone. It's not it's not easy to cross the border, whether legally or physically, because the lineups are long and, and the legal requirements. So so Niagara Falls, New York, all of a sudden is sitting there with all these customers, eight million is a lot of customers annually, and there is not one you know, hotel that is an iconic, wow, I'd like to stay there hotel. Well, the Canadian side has many of them that look and try, you know, they say, oh, that looks nice, that looks nice, that looks nice. And the U.S. side, none of them look nice. They're just boring. And then there's no high-end brands there at all. So there's this historic hotel, the Hotel Niagara, which was the only game in town. It was the grandest hotel for years. And it was bought by a Texas group, and they were going to renovate it and turn it into an upscale boutique hotel. Uh, and they lost it in the financial meltdown. So the government repossessed the mortgage, and I bought the mortgage. And then I ended up with the hotel. So it was completely ass-backwards. But then we ended up with this, this magnificent hotel that was uh, had been taken apart for the purposes of a renovation, which was great from my perspective, because you know the most difficult part of a reno is that first part where you start stripping the place down, you find, oh, my gosh, you know, I can't believe what we're finding behind the walls. Uh, and, and that had already been done. And in fact, they had already not only stripped it, but they had started to reinstall new plumbing, new wiring, new heat pumps, new boilers, new chillers, new elevator services. They had gotten sort of three-quarters of the way down the road with this thing when they lost the building. Hmm. So I inherited all of that. So you didn't know about that when you when you purchased it? I knew about some of it, but it wasn't like they fully explained it. Yeah. And the elevators weren't running, and we had like an hour to go through the whole building. So I saw a lot of this because I ran through it, and I, you know, I, I run stairs for my exercise, so I was probably the only guy that ran up to the top of the building and down to the basement. Looks, Americans don't do stairs, and um, you know, so they really didn't. I think most people didn't appreciate how much was there. There are entire rooms sitting on the fifth floor full of BX cable and mechanical systems that they just hadn't installed. Anyway, so we inherited the building and we started working on it. Now, one of the things that I did learn about in the United States is that there are uh, there are some phenomenal incentives and grants and loans for restoring historic buildings. So if you find some grand old building that's on the National Registry of Historic Places, uh, you can get up to 40% uh, of your work financed by the government, uh, of, of the whole rent of it, the whole development cost. And you can get incentive grants and loans from the state for creating jobs. And you can get enormous uh, property tax deferrals from the county. I mean, all in all, probably half, more of the half than half of the cost is going to be recovered from grants and loans. What they don't tell you up front, and what I didn't realize, because of course I got the, the glowing rosy story at the beginning when I was bidding on it, sure. was that they don't give you the money. They're not entirely stupid. They don't just hand you the money in a suitcase and say, good luck, we trust you. <laughs> you know, it's basically, okay, we approve the project, we'll approve it in principle, We'll sign off on the whole agreement, we'll agree to the amounts, you do it, and then we'll reimburse you afterwards. Right. Okay. So that became the problem, is what I would assume to be upfront help money was actually after-the-fact money. And I was stuck with this building, which was you know, clearly an unusual one. So we had to privately finance it, and that's what we're doing now, is we're just doing the whole thing as a private syndication, and uh, you know, the people are getting a good return because I'm going to be able to reimburse them when I get paid back at the end. 
Okay, so how does that work? You've got 200. Okay, so it's a hotel, just a straight up hotel. So you got 200 units, right? I've got 220 units and a very large banquet and event facility, and that is half the revenue of the building. So I've got 220 units, and the investors each buy them for 100 grand each, 99.9. They pay cash up front, so that's 22 million dollars. We use that money to do the rental, to do the redevelopment. And I and, and I have an approved budget from the from the state, which I got approved uh, actually when the dollar was different, so it was Canadian dollar was actually more, and the exchange difference and uh, at that time the Canadian dollar was like a dollar fifteen or so U.S. Now it's the other way around. So yep. I've got an approved budget of twenty-eight million dollars U.S. funds. Okay, perfect. Which is currently worth about forty million bucks Canadian. Yeah. So. Our investors are in for a hundred grand each. That's twenty two hundred and twenty of them. So it's twenty two hundred twenty million dollars. Each of them gets one two hundred twenty. So approximately just under five percent of the revenue. It's from the whole building. On balance, it's going to be about a fifteen percent annual return. Year one, yes. of course, there won't be because we're just getting ramped up. But when you look at the actual revenue that the Hills Hotel is kicking off, they're going to be looking at between ten to fifteen thousand dollars a year on their hundred thousand dollar investment. So what and I and that's for five years? Well that's on an ongoing basis. What I've offered them is after five years I will either buy I will buy it back at, at twice the price. So if they bought it for a hundred I will buy buy it back at two hundred in five years. Now I can do that because I'm being reimbursed. So I'm gonna do the reimbursement when I get my my money from the U.S. in five years, because it is a five-year reimbursement. And you've made it nice and simple, where it's not like, okay, Fallsview side pays this no, much. No, it's all one. It's all the same, because all the revenue that comes into the matter. building goes it's into all, the pot. It, yeah. It's a stock, essentially. It's, it's, all, it's all one consistent revenue. It doesn't matter to me what they paid per room. I could never keep track of it per room. Yeah, exactly. No, that's just what I was getting at, kind of trying to figure out, okay, well, what if I have, like, I'm, I'm up in the top floor. Like, doesn't this matter. Is, this is my unit, but it doesn't work that way. doesn't matter. It's like, you know, if you look at a seat on an airline, the, the person beside you, how much did they pay? I don't know. Maybe they're on points. Maybe they got it as a bonus. Maybe they're a last-minute business traveler. You could have paid anything from nothing to $500 for that seat beside you, maybe $1,000. The airline doesn't obsess about the seats. They obsess about how much money comes in the door when that plane takes off. And yeah, all so, we but, care but, about is how much money came in in total. But each investor is not buying a specific unit. They're buying a share in the, in the, they are uh, in getting the project. Share. They are getting shares in the building. And at the end of the five years, they can either redeem those shares for a double value or they can hang in. After the five years, the deal's off. I won't pay them 200%. And I will tell you that when we bought the hotel originally, it was with syndicates and investors, and I bid at the auction for, for the, the hotel, completely gambling. That's just something they might want to talk about in terms of you know the, the instincts and the, the risks involved, but I, I knew this would work. So I, I bid, and I ended up bidding into the millions of dollars. I didn't have that money. I had no clue how I was going to get that money, but I bid unconditionally on the hotel. So what we did then is we got access to the hotel for the next few weeks before closing, and we invited our investors to come and see it. I sent them a picture of the hotel and said, here's the general plan. Come on down. We'll do a new tour of the hotel. 
If you're interested, you can put your money in the pot. And we raised millions of dollars in a couple of days, literally, by people coming to see the hotel. So they could walk in and say, wow, this is real and it's cool. We'll probably split this up into two shows. Might have to, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's too long to listen to this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's pretty but, interesting. I mean, it's it's awesome. It's great stuff. 